Welcome to the Roofing CEO Show, episode number 22. Welcome to the Roofing CEO Show. My name is Dylan McCabe, and in every episode, we give you a seat at the table as we interview owners and CEOs of roofing companies so that you can get strategy from them to elevate your own game. Now, in this episode, I interview Heath Hicks. He is the inventor of the catch-all, but before that, he was the owner of Avco, and you are going to hear the story how he went from a sales guy, roofing sales for seven years, to the owner of a company and quickly grew that company basically from a two to three man team to eight locations and over 50 sales guys doing a lot of money with good profit margins and annual revenue. We're going to get into all of that, the journey and the process and key insights learned along the way. You're going to get a lot out of this episode. Plus, Heath is just a really cool guy. I thoroughly enjoyed interviewing him because of his background and because of his unique story into this space. And it's really going to be an inspirational and encouraging story to you, especially if you're in a challenging season with COVID. You're going to learn about how to face challenges, what kind of mindset you need to have, and how to move forward. Okay, there's just a lot of great stuff in this episode, and it's a longer one just because the more we talk, the more I wanted to talk with him and get more stuff out of it. So it's just great. Before we do that, if you haven't done so already, definitely check out our Facebook group, guys. We are growing a group that I want to be unlike most of the other groups out there. There's no spam allowed in our groups. There are no links, no videos, no anything. It's purely for discussion for owners and partners and leaders in roofing. <clears throat> Anybody who advertises gets gets kicked out immediately. So it's meant to be a place for discussion. Just do a Facebook search for Limitless Roofing CEO Group. That's Limitless Roofing CEO Group. Or you can just go to our website, LimitlessCEOGroup.com, and a banner will pop up that says, Join our Facebook group. Let's build this thing. Let's make it big and let's make it quality where it's not just this endless stream of random questions and ads. It's actually a place where you discuss leadership and the key components of your business and get synergy together. All right, guys, we want you part of the community and I look forward to seeing you there. Now let's get into this interview with Heath Hicks. All right. As I mentioned, we have special guest Heath Hicks on the show today. Heath is the owner of Avco Roofing and many of you may know him as the inventor and owner of the Catch-All. How's it going, guys? Yeah, thanks for joining the show, man. So I think a lot of people may, listening to this, maybe they met you at RoofCon, so they know you as the owner of the catch-all system, or maybe they know you in the world of roofing just in different avenues because you're the owner of Avco. And I think your story is really interesting um, as how you got into roofing and then how you became the owner of your company and stuff like that. So just kind of share your a little bit about your background and, and how you got into roofing. Yeah, so um, I'm originally from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Grew up a single mom scenario, pretty rough. Uh, In and out of shelters and government housing and church housing and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Pretty rough neighborhoods. I uh, seeing all of that struggle so close you know, inside my house and around all the people I grew up with, I just decided that whenever I got the steering wheel to my life in my hands, I just wasn't, wasn't going to allow that kind of stuff to happen. I was going to make different decisions. And um, so early on, I was really motivated to try, you know, different things, unusual things, think outside the box, uh, do stuff that other people didn't normally do. So I uh, moved to the Philippines when I was 17 and uh, lived up in the jungle with the tribe 
just helping them out, community development, trying to figure out how to make their life better. And um, started a long journey. I did a lot of nonprofit work for a long time all over the world. Saw all kinds of things. Went to so many different places that, you know, people don't normally go to for vacation, <laughs> you know. So I got to see a lot and learn a lot. Um, and when I kind of settled back here after about five years after college, um, I knew I was going to have to find some sort of more normal job and worked in film and television for a while for a studio. And then that was really attached to a marketing firm. So got a lot of experience there, just being creative and telling stories, branding companies, stuff like that. And uh, when the market crashed in 2008, I didn't want to move to LA or New York to be to dive deeper into the film and television industry. It just wasn't a career I really wanted. So I stayed here in East Texas, started just looking for jobs, did a few things here and there, a couple of sales jobs, did really well, but didn't really enjoy them that much. And then one of my buddies had started working as a roofing salesman. And I think he'd been doing it about six months. And he just called and said, hey, dude, you got to try this job. And so I jumped in and it was a interesting experience from the beginning. You know, the first, the first two things I learned were how to eat a deductible and that adjusters were the enemy. It's the first two things I learned and uh, realized almost immediately that the second one wasn't true, that they were just good people trying to do their job. And um, it took me several months to really figure out the first one was wrong. And uh, from there on out, I just kind of invented my own way of sales in the roofing industry. I didn't have a lot of good examples. They didn't, you know, they didn't have a lot of stuff going on, on Facebook at the time. There wasn't a lot of groups you could go to and conferences you could go to for storm restoration work. So I sort of just invented my own process because I ended up being a project manager, sales guy for seven years um, here in the same area the whole time. And that's pretty unusual for someone in roofing sales to be in it for that long. Um, so most companies. So let's let's stop right there because there's a huge there's a huge thing I want to address that see and this is why I love a podcast because we can talk we can go deep and you can share part of your story mm -hmm. which I think a lot of people may get to know you never even know that you've been to the Philippines or know that you had a rougher you yeah. know the early formidable years of your life were very challenging so for guys listening to that uh, that that. Um, you know, they may even have just that script in their heads of, yeah, but I've been, I've been kind of, I haven't been given what everybody else has been given. Right. I haven't been given the opportunity. I I grew up in a broken home or, you know, I grew up with an abusive parent or whatever. From your experience, you know, two people can go through that same experience and come out of it two different ways. Totally. And I, I heard a story one time, a guy says, you know, two people can fall out of a tree off the same branch. One can break his arm and the other can just come out with a bruise. And so what would you say? What's just one big piece of advice for people who, and I, people say, you don't know what I've been through. My response to that is, well, you don't know what I've been through, right. <laughs> but what yeah. would you say? What's a piece of advice that you would give to people that have kind of that defeated mindset where they feel like mm -hmm. they're a failure or they're, Right. They're, they're defeated and they, they don't have what say, it takes. I would say two things. If you're angry about what you went through, you're probably still a victim. 
If you're blaming others for your current shortcomings, you're probably still a victim. And if you want to get out of the curse or the ramifications of what those people did to you or out from under the damage that they caused you, you got to get out of being a victim. You can't be a victim anymore. It, yeah, it, I'll hear people's stories and I'll look at them and I say, yeah, that is really tragic that you experienced that. But if you let that dictate what you're going to be now, then you're responsible for it now. Yeah, you got handed something that, you know, no one deserved. But at this point as an adult, you've got to make up your own mind to not be that person anymore and to rewrite your story and rebuild yourself. And it hurts. It hurts to look at yourself in the mirror and say, I'm damaged this way, or I'm missing this thing, or I don't understand this thing about life because my parents didn't give it to me or my, this person did something really bad to me and it, it messed with my head or it messed with my heart. Um, yeah, it sucks, but you got to be direct and honest with yourself and say, yeah, I'm missing X, Y, and Z, but the only way I'm going to get it is if I forgive all that stuff, I let all that stuff go and I figure out how to give myself that now. You know, I never even met my dad. And so there's a ton of stuff he didn't give me in life. And when I was 21, I realized that if I wanted anything else, I was going to have to teach myself. There wasn't going to be anybody there for me. I'd always hoped another guy would come in, you know, marry my mom and become a dad for me. Or some guy at church would, you know, take me under his wing or adopt me. Not that there weren't good people in my life, but nobody was that real person for me that I had always longed for. And um, 21 years old, my girlfriend at the time broke up with me because I didn't understand how to be a man. I didn't have a good career. I didn't know how to fix a car. I didn't know how to, you know, install a dishwasher or a washing machine. I didn't know what the lights on your dashboard or your car meant. I didn't know how to fish. I'd never hunted anything. I didn't know any of that stuff. And yeah, it wasn't my fault, of course. But instead of just being upset about the fact that I didn't get it, you got to focus on what you can do. And so I just set my mind to learning that stuff because I didn't, not only did I not want to experience that kind of rejection again, but I had to look at myself in the mirror and say that she was right. She was right. I didn't, I didn't know any of that stuff. And up to that point, I'd been insecure about it or defensive about it, or I blamed other people for it, but I just decided I was going to own it. I was going to be an owner of my story and my future. And I wasn't going to let anybody that didn't do something for me or somebody did something wrong to me, dictate how my future was going to go anymore. And, um, I transferred from my job at my school. Um, I worked in the mail department. I transferred from there to the um, uh, maintenance and construction department. And to say that I was intimidated or terrified was an under is an understatement. My first day there, I um, showed up. And there was three other maintenance techs. And so the guy who ran that department has started handing out all these work tickets. You take this two, this one, this one, and this one. You take these two because they're right next to each other. And so I ended up with a little stack, I think four work tickets of things that I needed to go do. And I was reading through them and I didn't understand any of it. And so everybody kind of started moving around the, the shop, trying to find the tools they need and the supplies they needed. And some guys were cutting stuff. And I was looking around going like, oh, what am I going to do? Like I had to stall until everyone was gone so I could sit down and focus enough to try to figure out what I was going to need or how I was going to fix this stuff. Cause I didn't know anything about it. And um, 
the boss at the time had kind of come back and forth a couple times. And I think he figured out that I was stalling, you know? And so he came over real graciously. I asked him, um, let's see, well, how did I phrase the question? I tried to phrase it in a way that he wouldn't know that I didn't know anything about what I was doing. Um, and I think I asked him uh, where the tools were, something like that. Where are the tools that I'm going to use for this? <laughs> I didn't even know what tools I was going to use. I was just hoping he was going to point them out. And uh, he was like, okay, yeah, you're going to find a crescent wrench. I'll never forget. He's like, you're going to find a crescent wrench over here, and then you're going to find your metric sockets over there. And then I just didn't hear anything else after that. I just glassed, glazed over because I didn't know either any of those things were. And um, I was like, okay, cool, cool. You know, and so then I go over to the drawer that he kind of pointed at and I opened it and there's all this stuff in there. Where I didn't have any idea what a crescent wrench was. And so I'm like, well, I can't figure that out. So I went over to the socket thing and I was like, okay, I, I think I can tell these go on something, but I literally didn't know how to connect. I just didn't, I literally didn't know. And so next thing I knew, I was so frustrated and so insecure. I was standing there crying, literally just crying, hoping that like no one was around um, because I was just, I had that moment where I could, I started to feel really angry about the fact that I, my dad, my brother actually took me to meet him. He didn't tell me I was in the car. He didn't tell me where we were going. My brother knew him. He was just, we had different dads. He took me to meet him and he went up to the door or whatever and told him that I was out there. And he's like, nah, I don't, I don't want to meet him. Like he wouldn't even walk out of his house to come meet me. So I'm standing there like thinking about that. I was so angry for a moment. And then I just realized it doesn't do any good to be angry. There's no reason to be angry now. It's done and over with a long time, long time over with. And uh, so I just collected myself and realized that I'd taken this job to figure it out and that I could figure it out because other guys did it. So if they can do it, I can do it. And I walked into the guy's office and I basically just told him the truth. And he took me under his wing and he helped me. And, you know, a year of doing that job, I came out with this incredible confidence because I'd figured out how to build things. I figured out how to repair things. My, my mind opened up to all these possibilities because I was able to get past my victim mentality. It was no longer important who was to blame for what had happened to me. It was important that I took the steering wheel so that I could write my future. Um, so I would say for people that are struggling with their story, you want you want to be the author of it from here on out. You don't want anybody else to have the pen. Nobody else sitting at the typewriter. It's just you. And uh, if you think it's someone else, you're wrong. You're letting them do that. Man, that is so good. I really appreciate your authenticity and vulnerability in sharing that because, especially in this world of general contracting and roofing, there's a lot of bravado. There's a lot of you yeah, know yeah, yeah. alpha males. You know, be impressed by me. And look, when we all get to know each other, none of us are impressed. Like when we all really get, when I really get to know you and we become close friends, what I start to see is the real person. And all of us, if we're honest with ourselves. We have, we're a mixture of areas that are really strong and great. And we have a, a lot of areas that are need improving and that are, that are not admirable at all that we're ashamed of. And when you can just accept that, then you can actually work on it and develop as a leader. But I love that story because that is just, for those of you listening to this, I love the way you said it. You write that you write the chapters. Don't let somebody else write it. And for those listening to this, you just heard yet another story. Uh, of somebody who took a challenge and used it as a stepping stone 
And all, all of our, the things we go through, the sufferings, the failures, the setbacks, all of those things can be stepping stones to success if we respond the right way. And a lot of times that, that takes us stepping back saying, I want to learn from this. I want to use it. And I'm going to keep striving forward. And uh, I mean, I just really appreciate yeah. that because I don't think people will appreciate the story of Avco and of the catch-all as much without hearing that part of it. So, so let's sure. talk about that now. So you, you did sales and stuff like that for about seven years, which you mentioned a lot of guys don't stay in it that long. Um, they go off and start their own thing or they go on to something else. So right. as you developed in that role of sales and as you started, you know, kind of creating a customer experience that got you more sales, you mm-hmm. transitioned from a sales guy to an owner. So tell us how yeah. that worked out. So um, I worked for one company for about five years and then I tried out two other companies, just, you know, just short season. And I told them it was trial and I was basically, I was putting them on trial, you know, like it was their trial period to see if they could support me enough to handle what I was going to bring into their business. And um, uh, two of them didn't make it. But during that time, the owner of Avco had, really tried hard to headhunt me for like a year. He had met with me a few times. He'd taken me out to lunch. We ran into each other on job sites. Um, and he took me out to lunch the last time. And uh, It was kind of a one-man show at that point. It wasn't, it wasn't a big deal at all at the time. He had kind of gone up and down with storms or whatever. He had scaled up a little, you know, a few sales guys and then go back down to just him or whatever. And um, he was a really nice dude, really nice dude. Um, but he basically just said, he's like, man, I really want somebody here that can help me because he was a little bit older. He's like, I want somebody that can help me, you know, get into like new school roofing, you know, not, not just old school sales. He's like, I want to turn it into a roofing company. Um, and he kind of said, like, I'm an old dog, can't learn new tricks. Like I want somebody to come in. And uh, I'd heard that kind of stuff before. It didn't, it didn't really do a lot for me, but, but then he told me about how this was the only thing in life that he'd ever done right. Was that business? He didn't get himself together until he was in his fifties. A lot of bad decisions, a lot of bad habits, addictions, et cetera. Just, you know, he just told me this is the only good thing he'd ever done in life. Really. He found a great woman at the end of his life and he made one, <laughs> one smart set of decisions and he didn't want it to go away. If he made a mistake or if he got too old or if something happened to him, because it still supported his daughter. He had a daughter pretty late in life. She was still young at the time. And he just said, you know, I just want some, I want it to be here. If something happens to me, I want somebody to be able to run it. And that kind of just pricked my heart a little bit, you know, just hearing him talk about his legacy. And so I said, okay, we'll figure it out. Give me some time to kind of close down what I'm doing in my pipeline over here. Cause you know how it is. You, a lot of times you don't collect everything you're supposed to collect once you actually bounce from somewhere. And so I just, wanted to make sure that I had a, a good handle on everything. And then um, he died two weeks later, just out of the blue. Wow. Not expected, not expected at all. He didn't have any long-term conditions or anything. He just died like two weeks later. And so um, as soon as I heard that, I contacted his wife and I just said, Hey, I'm going to come over. He had literally just talked to me about this stuff, you know, not knowing anything like this was going to happen, but uh, I'm going to, come over and just figure out how to help you keep it open. Cause she didn't know anything about the business at the time. Um, and so <clears throat> I jumped in, there was three people at that moment, at that point, we just kind of split the company into three parts and figured out how to run it all. And um, it got pretty dramatic from them, then on out. Um, there were some people stealing a lot of money from the company and doing a lot of shady stuff. 
um, kind of in the, the gap of leadership, you know, um, and it was really sad because <laughs> they were stealing from her, you know, a widow, they were taking her money. So it was pretty hard. I worked there for about a year and a half. And then I think she kind of figured out what was going on there. The CPAs kind of figured it out. And uh, she just asked me if I wanted to buy it. Cause apparently one of those other people had been telling her they were going to do that and kind of stringing her along or something. I don't know exactly, but either way, I, um, I stepped up to the plate and I said, yeah, we'll, we'll do it if there's a reasonable price, but the company wasn't dead at the time. And I just said, let's work to get it back to zero and then figure out what it's worth or whatever. And then we'll figure it out. So worked for a few months, um, really hard, like busting it super hard to just generate as much revenue as possible to be able to make up for the debt load that it had and um, got it back to zero. She made me a good deal. I felt good about helping her transition, you know, into that season of her life, having some money to go with her and support herself and, it was just a good deal. It was really positive um, until the day of transition came. <laughs> then uh, it was pretty tumultuous that day. I had people kicking and screaming and punching holes in walls and trying to beat me up and all kinds of stuff the day that the transition happened because they were upset about their gravy train going away, you know? Wow. Yeah. So the day that I technically started, because on that day that we had grown – over that last year, a fair amount. Uh, there was probably like six or seven people working there. Um, and by the day that I did the actual transition and I took over, I had to bring in someone for there to even be another person. It was just me and one other guy. They jumped in pretty last minute. And um, so the day we took over, it was just me and one other dude. And uh, we had a plan to get to 5 million in revenue within five years. Um, cause we were just basically doing about a million a year in revenue and it was just me. I was the only one selling anything really. So it was just me selling. And so it was about a million a year. And I, uh, went to the small business development council and the incubator around here and all that stuff. And just tried to like get my, get a handle on what we were going to try to do and put a strategy together. And they were like, man, there's no way they're like, that's really aggressive to try to get to 5 million in five years, you know, from a million. I was like, well, I mean, I, I know that it's possible. It's not. I mean, I knew the job inside and out, you know, minute by minute of the day to penny by penny by the job. I knew exactly how it would all, how it could all play out. And so we just jumped in and tried to get it, try to hit it hard. And we ended up doing our first 5 million in the first 12 months instead of five years. Wow. So the, as you, so as you transitioned, you, 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 you went through the stuff you went through as a sales guy then the owner dies two weeks later after this conversation. Yeah. So now you're back into a situation where it's kind of like baptism by fire mm-hmm. and you're having to really run a company uh, without having run a company before as the leader and owner, yeah, yeah. you work out this deal with her, you get the company down to zero and now you're going, you're back. You've, you've got a kind of a clean slate in your company and you're growing. You thought you were going to get there in five years. You're doing 5 million a year what was the biggest challenge that you faced as the new company owner and you guys are growing? I mean, you're staying busy. What, what was, what would you say is the biggest challenge you faced as a new owner at that point? At that point, it was, I, I absolutely knew that I had to reproduce myself and my sales guys. And so the hardest thing was not getting caught up in the details of the logistics of running the day to day part. Um, I knew there would be a time that I would really jump into that, but to get to trajectory, to get up off the ground and really get out in, into space and away from the gravity of failure, I suppose, uh, I had to reproduce myself 
And so it was challenging to not get too caught up and to trust other people to get that done. Of course, there had to be oversight, there had to be influence, but I couldn't allow myself to step out of that role of developing a team, the sales team, um, to start worrying about what was going on in finance and what was going on, in, you know, the administration side of things. It just wasn't what was going to be successful for us. And uh, I know there's a million different ways to do it. So I'm not criticizing anybody else for the way they do it. But for me, I knew that I just couldn't get caught in that. And so um, there was a lot of trust. There was a lot of mistakes on that side. There were a lot of shortcomings that we didn't make up for until like year three and four, even things that weren't totally built right uh, internally. Um, but I knew that the external driver of the business had to be up and running before I stepped away and really focused on that. And, um, it creates its own challenges for sure. But that was my biggest thing was being able to just reproduce myself and having that singular goal, um, and not wavering from it. And so we went, we finished the first year, I think with seven stable producing sales guys by the end of the first year. And then the second year in peak season, I think we were about 11 sales guys into the season of sales for year number two. And um, it paid off dramatically because we, we doubled that next year from 5 million to 10 million, but we only went from seven sales guys to 11 sales guys because they all found their rhythm. They found their lane. They knew what they were doing every day. Everything was efficient. They were making good sales. They were making great money. Um, and so once we kind of got, um, that trajectory to kind of get away from uh, failure um, because of lack of revenue. There's a million other ways you can fail, but um, then we started focusing on systems at that point um, internally. Uh, but yeah, year one, the, the challenge was to not get distracted from reproducing myself and the system of sales that I had created, the way I sold things, the reason I sold things, the way that I treated customers and viewed customers, I had to replicate that. Um, and so that was the focus. So that's a big thing we talk about in our roofing CEO groups is having processes that are documented, illustrated, and followed by all so that you're a process driven company and not a person driven company. Cause, cause uh, sometimes you don't have the right people, but once you get the right person, you got to have a process that's repeatable. So we could we could talk about this for an hour about how to develop yeah. the right sales process. But if you were to just take a few minutes and outline your process of how you onboard and train and 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 basically create these clones of the right the, the getting the right people in the right seats on the yeah. sales team, how does what does that look like all the way from your hiring to now you've got them, you've got them there, you train them, and then you deploy them. What does that look like? So it starts with um, the way at which we approach hiring, the thought behind it. So um, in evaluating a person, whether I think they're going to be a good fit or not, um, the two biggest things is motivation and character. Um, they've got to have motivation and they've got to have the right character. And if they don't have the motivation, I can't give it to them. That's something they're bringing to the table. I can give them inspiration. I can direct them, I can guide them, I can put some boundaries up around their motivation to get them moving in the right way. But if they don't have that, there's there's nothing to be done. You know, my pastor used to say growing up that it was um, it's hard to steer a car that's not moving. And uh, I'd rather 
I'd rather get in a car with somebody who's going the wrong way because at least they're going somewhere. I can turn them around. But somebody that's sitting in their car, not going anywhere, trying to talk to them, talk them into getting started, that's way harder. Find somebody who's already moving, who's already been successful. Uh, if you don't have a job, this job's not for you. You know, if you haven't been successful, if you're not already making good money, this job's not for you. I'm not trying to find guys who've never made money before. I'm not trying to find guys who haven't been successful before. I'm trying to find people who've hit a ceiling of earning or more importantly, most people, it's not the earning cap. It's the ability to continue to be challenged and grow and learn. That's what the cap most people run into. Um, because money is really not as much of a driver as we try to give it credit for, for most people. Um, especially people of character, I guess there are some people who fall into that boat, but I guess I don't interact with a ton of them. So maybe it doesn't seem like as big a crowd as it is to me, but um, most, most people want a strong vision and path forward that they can be a part of. And they'll even make less money for that opportunity. Um, and so finding people who are capped um, by their previous success um, or in their previous success, they're capped by the people they work for, the organization they work for, or just the career choice. Sometimes it just only goes so far and you may have to wait around in a position for 10 years or 20 years for the next thing to open up. Looking for those people, um, I, we typically find people that are motivated. And so if they're motivated, then we evaluate the character. Are they honest? Are they genuine? Are they going to do the right thing always? When, even when nobody's looking, that's the people we're looking for. Um, because that's kind of an intangible that you do communicate even in the first 10 seconds with a customer, you do communicate that certainly not with words, but it's, it's an intangible, almost imperceptible feeling that people will get about you. They just get a good read on you. And if they get that read on you and they can tell that you're there for them or to benefit them and not yourself first, then they're probably going to trust you through the process. So got to have the right character, got to have motivation and after that, as long as they can learn, as long as they can follow the system or learn the system, I can make anybody successful. I don't care what they look like. I don't care what their previous experience has been. Uh, I don't care what their personality type is. If, they, if they've got strong motivation and good character and they can learn, they can do what they're told, they can succeed. That was the that's system. Good stuff. That's the system that we were striving to build in years one and two was a sales system that could make average Joe's successful. Because if you build it around rock stars, your system is, it's weak. It's not right. It's imbalanced. Um, and rock stars are the ones that always want exceptions. They're the ones that always break the system. They're the ones that don't follow the rules. I don't, I don't want a whole team of rock stars. I don't really even need one rock star. I need a bunch of guys that just want to be successful, that are ready to get in the dirt and work hard um, because they got something to work for. You know, usually a family and kids and stuff like that is pretty important um, for finding the right kind of people. But we said from very early on that we wanted to build a system that average Joes could could maximize. You know, that would make up for maybe what they lack in some areas. The system would strengthen them and support them and help them to be more successful than they'd be on their own. That's good stuff, man. And then when you guys train them, you go through the interview process. You you find a guy with character. <clears throat> who's motivated, you find a guy that wants to learn, stuff like that. And then do you do like a mixture of online learning plus in-person, just going, following along with one of your other sales guys on here's how you inspect a roof, yeah. here's how you... So uh, we, we do most things pretty different. 
I would say we just tried to throw out what anybody else had ever done and figure out what was successful for us, figure out things that had made individuals on our team successful or the team as a whole and replicate that and hone in on that. And so we basically hire one time a year. We have one training a year um, and we hire them before season starts and in each of their offices. So I think we have eight offices now. And so in each office, they'll get hired locally there. Um, they have a week where they go out into the field and they observe what's happening from the sales side and from the installation side, um, just so they can get kind of a context of what we're going to train them after that. Because if you've never been on a roof, you've never done all this stuff, you can tell people all you want about how to measure a roof and how to climb a roof and how to talk to a customer. But if they haven't seen somebody sitting there with a customer talking to them, it, there's no frame of reference for it. So the information doesn't stick. Um, hold on to five or 10% of it. So we set out in the, in the field to get um, a context of what the job is. And then we bring them in all together. We bring in everybody in the company and we do one big training week. Um, and the green beans will start on Monday and they'll go through Friday and the experienced guys will jump in on Thursday and get Thursday and Friday training. But uh, the guys do get that training every year and it's always new and updated and fresh for the guys that have been here, but for the green beans, um, we've got, you know, 10 or 12 staple topics and talks that we give, you know, to get them from green bean to being able to be successful. Um, but I look specifically for people who have never worked in this industry before sales experience is fine, but I really, I really kind of don't want most people that have been in the industry, not, not individually, even because of them most of the time, just what they bring to the table from the people they've worked for. Um, it's a lot harder to retrain somebody than it is just training right the first time. Um, and again, when I say right, I mean our way. I know other people have different ways and it's, it's great. There's people that probably do better jobs in different areas than we do, but um, I just, for, for them to fit in our company, they need to be trained our way, you know, because we just have a specific way we do everything. So they need to do it our way and understand it our way, have our culture. Um, <clears throat> so we bring them all together and we do it all at one time because there's such an, an exchange of information and culture and energy that happens when there's a bunch of people together. They take it a lot more seriously than if they're sitting in a room with one other guy and watching some videos and somebody comes in every couple hours and checks on them. Those guys are, have a hard time taking that seriously. Um, but when there's, you know, 60 or 80 people in a room together and everybody's focused and they've all got their notebooks out and they listen to people that have really prepared their talks, they've got good PowerPoints and they're, you know, focus good communicators it's just more successful and so to be able to do that you can't do it once a month you can't certainly can't do it once a week and so we just do it once a year so we figure out based on our um, plans for the next year how many people we're going to need to hire and we kind of have a you know if we want to hire 20 then we're going to have to interview 80 which means we're going to have to get this many applications and weed it out because you know so many people especially nowadays just don't show up they don't care about finding a job, they'll go through the second interview process on the phone and book an appointment and just no call, no show. It's like so common. So, you know, we ba we base on how many people we actually need on the ground being successful, start working that number up and the funnel just goes up. So at the top of the funnel, we, we got like, you know, 2000 applications we're trying to take um, to weed down to having 12 successful guys on the field that year, you know, um, so we try to get them all together and do it at the same time, just to give them the best chance of success and give them, give them the highest quality training we can. Um, that's how we do it. And then when they go back into their individual offices, they'll have a field trainer that stays with them for a couple of weeks. Um, 
just to give them pointers of you know day-to-day -day stuff application of all the stuff they've learned and seen um once they get out into the field that is so good i mean there's so much so much i want to ask you but i don't want to make this a three-hour podcast interview but with your so a lot of people hearing that might be thinking wait a second did he just say eight offices is that what you said yeah yeah so you guys clearly have a solid system in place if you can sustain the growth of eight offices, because a lot of the, you know, our tagline for our deal is connecting CEOs to accelerate growth and sustain success. Because a lot right. of guys will have a big year, you know, $5 million a year, and then the next year is a $3 million a year, and then the next year is $4 million, and then the next year is two, and they don't know how to sustain it. And so you guys have found a way that's worked for you to develop the systems. You've got the right people on board. And you've got a vision that, you know, a company culture and vision that people want to be a part of long-term. And I think that's awesome. I mean, we could do another podcast interview just on that. But um, so as you, as you got into that and you guys started growing, you go through those challenges of trying to replicate yourself. You have a big first year. What happened from there? Because I know, obviously, now you're at a point where you've got eight locations. You've got, how many sales guys do you have? Uh, about 50. 50 sales guys. So how have you, what's been one of the biggest keys to that kind of uh, growth? I mean, how you can't do that by accident. So what was it that yeah, you guys were it's doing? Definitely very, it's definitely very purposeful. Um, how do you, how do you, how do you make that growth or how do you sustain that growth? What's your question again? Well, what's one of the things that you guys were doing early on that enabled you to keep getting more jobs to, to get referrals, to get more business like that, because oh, that's, right. that takes some, a real intentional approach to sales. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. I would say if you train the guy to be successful and he approaches the customer the right way, then um, there's really not much option for him other than getting referrals from the customer if he really does it the right way, if he really values that customer through the whole process, um, of course they're going to want to take him to the people that they know. You know, if they really feel like he was there to serve them and help them and get them through the challenges they were facing at the time, um, yeah, they're absolutely going to want to tell people. So we focus on that from the beginning. We talk about, you know, your money's not in this job. It's really in the next two jobs. And then as soon as you get to that Second job, it becomes your first job again. So your money's not really here. It's in the next two. And you just keep that mindset knowing that from moment one, what you're really working for is the moment that when the job is done, they put you in their golf cart and they drive you over to their neighbor. And they're like, I got to, I got to, I got to, I got to introduce you to these people. Um, that's really the barometer for success. It's not just an individual job and whether it made money or whether they made good commission or not. It's how many people are they stuffing into their pipeline? And when does it become a siphon where it starts sucking customers into this end of it where you're not even doing the work anymore. The, the momentum of your, your work and your effort and your character and your focus is just drawing people into the other end of your pipeline. Um, that's what you're working for. So that's a long-term goal. It takes you six months really to build that pipeline. But if you know that that's possible and you're working around people that are already doing it and your training from the beginning focuses on that, um, yeah, you're probably going to experience it. So if I so, hear you right, you're basically saying with your sales guys, the goal is for every roofing job you have closed, the goal is to actually get two more closed jobs out of that. Not totally. just two referrals, two closed yeah. jobs. 
Yeah, we don't even count like opportunities. Like when someone get like you know the old school referral cards, we ask them to write down you know a couple of neighbors' names and phone numbers or stuff. We don't even count that as referrals. Not that it's not that you shouldn't do it. You should do it, and you should absolutely follow up on it um, and hunt those people down. But we don't really even count those as referrals. We count closed deals as referrals um, because nothing really matters up to that point. You can sign a million contracts, but who cares if you can't keep them? Um, what does it matter? And if you spend all that time with that customer, if you only got that one customer, you kind of you kind of failed. So, so what's a so what's a key takeaway from that for guys listening to this that are saying, man, Keith's guys are killing it. You know, what what what's a big parting or not a parting, what's what's a key takeaway piece of advice that you want to give to guys listening to this that want to elevate their sales game? Well, you've got to pick a strategy and you've got to work it from the first moment. So if your strategy is going to be to get easier customers less expensively and more quickly then it's going to be referrals. And if that's your strategy, that's going to be your goal from the first time you meet with customer A is to get to customer B and C. And if that's your, if that's your goal in that interaction, then that should be your goal in your training. And if that's your goal in your training, then you're going to hire people who can do that. You know, so it works itself backwards, um, you know, kind of reverse engineering the end goal. Um, cause if a guy is getting referrals off of every job, even if it's just one, if they're shooting for two and they're only getting one, they at least stay busy. Um, if they're getting 1.2 referrals, you know, built closed jobs off every job they get. then by the end of the season, they're too busy. They can't even take any more customers. If they're getting two off of every one in the beginning of the season, they're maxed out within three months. There's no way they can get to the end of the year, even doing all those people. So then we end up hiring makeup people just to come in and catch all the overflow jobs. And that those people are like, this is awesome. They showed up and they just get handed a bunch of jobs um, because, you know, sales guy A can't even keep up with it. But again, it's really that intention and that goal, creating it, um, putting out in the distance like a lighthouse and only driving forward to that one singular thing. And then everything backwards between here and there, you can just um, make sure that you're staying on course and build your system accordingly. That's good. Well, let's switch gears and talk about something that I think is is popping up in people's minds if they're listening closely, especially if they're motivated, like you said, which is money, right? Nobody nobody got into this business to be poor. Right. Uh, a lot of us are motivated because we want to provide for our families. You're, you know, my story is similar to yours. I grew up very poor. I'm, I'm motivated in a large way to provide for my family in a way that I wasn't. You know, not 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 to be the the next John Rockefeller, but just to make sure that things are good, they're safe, they're secure, there's opportunities, there's, um, you know, safety nets in place financially and stuff like that. So for guys listening to this, they may think, oh my gosh, 50 sales guys, eight locations, and he also owns the business and started the catch-all, which we'll get into at the end of the uh, interview here. But what's your take on money? Let's just take a minute to expose the so, ugly side of the the earnings in the roofing industry. Why are there so many guys that get into this business, make money, and a year later they're bankrupt? Um, I would say it starts with the heart. And my uh, my heart in taking this opportunity to be the owner was to make sure that the the people that I knew and loved around me for the last ten or fifteen years of my life had an opportunity. Um, I personally had an opportunity to go and pretty deep into commercial, like large scale commercial sales. Um, 
And I probably would have made more money the first two or three years of this journey if I had taken that route. Um, it certainly would have been simpler, but I come with a lot less responsibility. Um, but my heart was, you know, in this little town that I live in, there's not a ton of opportunity for people that want to make more than 45 grand a year, or 50 grand a year, you know, um, but especially without a real degree in a specialized field, you just don't have a lot of opportunity to do that. And then even when you do in this little town, if you make 65 or 70, yeah, maybe on paper, it sounds good, but how much money do you have to spend to get that degree and how long is it going to take you to pay it off? You don't really have a ton of opportunity in front of yourself for a while. Not that you should, you know, not be willing to take the route you have to take, but I knew what the opportunity was in this, in this field for people to earn if they were the right person and they could do it the right way. And so I took the opportunity because I wanted the people that I knew and loved to have that opportunity that I'd had. And my goal from the beginning was to serve them, to help them, to inspire them, to make them successful. And so because of that, it was never hard for me to reinvest the money that I was making and back into the business because it was benefiting so many people. Um, I had a guy be real frank with me and this is kind of a rough word. And so I don't mean to offend anybody, but um, he's a business acquisitions and tax lawyer. And he was telling me that what he saw most people do is they just raped their business. They just took everything out of it. Anything it made, they took it out and they left the business without the ability to sustain itself, without the ability to grow, without creating any value in the business. They were taking all the value out and putting it into their own lives. And it doesn't really generate return when you do that. It might generate a moment of satisfaction when you get to buy the boat or the truck or the whatever, you know, but it is not the smart way to do business. And so for the first, the first six months, I didn't take a paycheck at all. And we had money. You know, a lot of people tell the story of like, oh, we just didn't make anything. No, we made good money. I just didn't take it because I knew it was more important somewhere else. And especially in the early portions, the money I put in there was going to come back way more many times than what I was, what I didn't take out. Um, and or the money I put in year two, the money I put in back year two was going to was going to roll over a couple of times. But the money that I put in the first six months, it was going to roll over like 10, 20 times. And so I was just motivated to not take it because I had made good money for myself before that. So I didn't take anything out of the business for like the first six months. And then my CPAs were like, you have to take a salary at least. This is the minimum you can get away with. It was 60 grand a year. So I took 60 grand a year for a couple of years. And you know, according to like revenue splits or percentages, I should be making way more than that, but I didn't want to, I wanted to stay in the business because it meant we could buy more trucks and then we could have a better office. And then I could recruit more people. It meant that I could support the people that are already there better, you know, and I could hire people before I needed them before everything was crashing and burning. I had the money to hire someone um, before everything was falling apart. Now that we didn't have some big failures there, but um yeah, if you if you really want to make money, then double down on yourself and let it ride. Leave it in there. Let it work. Put it to work. Bet on yourself. Um, don't bet on your free time. Don't spend on yourself. Um, you know, that's my that's my particular perspective. My heart wasn't in here for the money. I had no real driver to make any money beyond just not having to feel the stress of not being able to pay my bills. That was my only goal in getting into roofing sales or in my career at any point was really just to not feel the stress. And that honestly is much more about how you manage your money than it is about how much money you make. 
So, so true. I mean, I, I think that's great because our culture, that's so countercultural. I mean, I'm, I'm in Dallas, Texas. Dallas is a very showy city. People like to show what they earn through the cars mm-hmm. they drive, through the clothes they wear. I mean, I grew up in Houston and I moved to Dallas and I heard for the first time the phrase uh, $30,000 millionaire. And it stands <laughs> yeah, for people yeah. that only make 30 grand a year, but they want to look like millionaires. So they lease yeah. a BMW and so on. And it's just so silly, you know, but it, it's, um, and I heard somebody else say the slogan for Austin, Texas is keep Austin weird, but the slogan for Dallas should be keep Dallas pretentious. <laughs> but I love, I love the point you made because maybe, it's so counter- it keep people poor. Yeah. I like what you said though, because it's so countercultural and I feel like it should really be required reading for any of us who are business owners to read a book like the richest man in Babylon or rich dad, poor dad by Robert Kiyosaki, because it makes it pretty, pretty clear. Like you're either going to build up your assets or you're going to build up your liabilities. And a lot of guys get into this industry and they make their first hundred grand or whatever. And they go straight to liabilities. They go straight to putting that money into something that they won't make any money out of like a $70,000 truck or whatever. And those things are fine if you can afford them. But, but most guys get into this and they see a big paycheck and they think, Oh, well now I'm, I'm, I'm wealthy and it's yeah. not sustainable. So I really like that. I, I actually had a conversation with Kevin Kennedy. He um, helps do um, succession plans and exit plans for owners of roofing companies. Mm-hmm. And a lot of his clients are in commercial roofing, but he, he shared some really shocking statistics with me and I don't want to botch them, but it, it basically the majority of business owners in roofing don't have a company they can sell. Because of that, the financial instability, a lack of processes in place, and they haven't surrounded themselves with the right people. So they also don't have a plan that where they can do a succession plan and pass the business off right, to right. a partner or whatever. So I just love what what you've done. And there's so much wisdom to gain from that. Um, I think the last thing I'd like to ask you about is where in the world did the catch-all come from? I mean, how did you go to from scaling a really successful roofing business to now you've got a second company, which is the catch-all? Yeah. So in my seven years of doing the job, you know, every day in somebody's front yard, I uh, had a lot of opportunities to understand what a customer really wants from the experience. Um, yeah, plenty of opportunities, especially starting out in the place I did where the mindset was, you know, roofing is what it is. This is a construction site. We're going to break some stuff. We're going to leave some nails behind, but we're going to do our best not to, but it's probably going to happen. Um, but, you know, it's a part of the deal. It's expected. Um, and so communicating that to the customer on the front end, they usually kind of sound understanding like, oh yeah, I kind of get that. But then the reality of it is for them, they come out or they come home on lunch, you know, on the first day and, their house looks like it's never going to recover. Like their house looks like it's never going to be the same. There's crap laying everywhere. There's, you know, tracks back and forth through the yard where guys have carried a bunch of stuff and trampled the grass down and this bush is leaning over and the fountain that their wife loves is disassembled and it looks like it probably got cracked or whatever it is. And then all of a sudden this anxiety just escalates. And now, even if you worked really hard up to that point to make sure that you're on the same team with that customer, you just like broke free and they're clearly adversarial with you at that moment for what you've done to their place of residence, which is, you know, very, very likely to be the most valuable thing in their life is that home for a bunch of different reasons, financially and emotionally and otherwise. And so 
they immediately feel like, uh, you know, something is going very wrong and it's not going to be right at the end. Um, I just hated that experience. And so I worked, you know, very diligently over a long period of years to figure out how to do it in a way that would make them comfortable with what we were going to do from communicating better expectations up front, not overselling it, being realistic about what it's going to be like, and then trying little things all the time to make less of a mess, protect things more, um, make the job site look more like a job site than a garbage heap, you know, mid job. Like I would just kind of like take a snapshot of my brain of what was happening right now. And if the customer drove up and saw this, what would they feel? They probably didn't see it right when they left. They didn't even look back at their house. They just drove off to work. Um, showing up from whatever in their mind was their house to looking at that in the middle of the job, most of them are going to panic, you know, uh, with the way that we were doing it at the time. We've changed a lot. And, and the roofing industry as a whole has started to change too. So it's not maybe as bad as it was. Although I still see really, really bad job sites all the time. Um, I just started using plywood and tarps and signs and caution tape and cones and whatever I could do to make it look like we were trying to do the best we could. And that what we were doing, we were doing on purpose, not on accident. Cause if they came out here and, and they see everything and they think it's haphazard, then they get really uncomfortable. Like this stuff here laying on the ground, it looks like someone spilled it or threw it or couldn't get it over there. So they just tossed it over here. That, that doesn't communicate excellence to them. So we were, I was always just trying to how to make it look like everything was on purpose. Everything was measured and calculated. And even if there was trash out, it was in a contained pile and we had stuff around it together what might blow off. And it was obvious how it was going to transition from here into the trailer and not ruin their yard and all that. And so I just tried everything I could think of. Um, and then the nail problem, once I kind of got the job site build process under control, the nail problem was just endlessly frustrating for me. Um, always having callbacks. And when I say always, not every job, of course, but a percentage of jobs, you know, that, that next morning or a week later or two weeks later or four weeks later, hey, I found some nails, my dog stepped on it or it's in my golf cart tire, or my lawnmower tire, and then they're frustrated. They had a great experience. That experience kind of wore off. And then the last little thing they remember was that. It just, it just crushed me, you know, because I did such a better job than that. And there really wasn't a good way to deal with it. I mean, I tried everything. I, I started buying the project manager's metal detectors and then I bought the crew metal detectors. So they both had them so they could both do it at the end of the job. And then I, then I found these magnets from some company in Colorado that were like 900 bucks a piece, supposedly the most powerful magnet on earth or whatever. I bought a whole slew of those and it just made marginal difference, marginal difference. And the only thing it really made honestly was the only difference it made was people saw the extra effort of them doing that. And then if there was still something, they might be a little bit more understanding. They still weren't happy. They still didn't like it. They just might've been a little bit more understanding. And so I just kept diving in, kept digging in to figure out how to solve it. And then I just realized one day, I'm like, man, if I can just keep the nails from ever hitting the ground, that's the only solution. Because once they hit the ground, you're never going to get them all up. It's not going to happen. I've tested it. I promise you. I get people on Facebook all the time saying, like, we don't ever leave any nails behind. Yes, you do. You leave a ton of nails behind. You just don't know it. Yeah, well, it's not that you mean to. Yeah. Most customers don't call you. You've got to realize if you get a call, there's probably three to five other customers that had the same experience that didn't call you because they're not confrontational. You know, they don't want to open up a can of worms. They're vaguely satisfied enough to just get done with it. I don't want to talk about it. And so if you get one call every month, you probably got five, six, eight, ten customers that had that same experience that just didn't tell you. 
And um, you'll know because you're not getting referrals. That's where you're known. If you're not getting referrals from every one of your customers, there's something wrong with your system. Something's not going right because you should get glowing reviews from everybody. Unless there's like a very obvious mistake, you know, like one of your crew, like, you know, took a dump behind their shed and they found it. Those people are probably not going to give you a referral. And there's a very clear reason why. Um, but if you did a, a seemingly good job and that person's just not a raving fan, it's because there's, there are things they experienced that they didn't like. And even if you sit them down and pull them for 20 minutes, they're probably not going to tell you about most of it because they're just uncomfortable doing that. So look at your results that you're getting in your referral department and just realize there's, there's probably stuff that you're missing. And so for me, I knew that one of those things was the nails because I was getting calls consistently, no matter what I was trying, I was still getting the calls. And so I knew that there was a lot more people than I was hearing about having that experience. So I just realized I got to keep the nails off the ground because once they get in, once they get in the grass or once they get in the flower beds, you're not getting them all out. I don't care what you do. You get down on your hands and knees. I've tried it. I've literally dropped a hundred nails in an area and marked it and let everybody work over it the whole day in an area that, that I know they didn't drop any. And then we'll go back with the magnet and we'll pull out like 60. And then we'll rake the grass and we'll do it again. And we'll pull out like 20 more. And then we'll put the magnet every which way, every possible way, get two more. And they get down on your hands and knees and you find five and you're like, well, there's 12 nails left right here. I put them here myself. I can't find them. They're not out. There's, there's nails going to be left behind. So I just realized that the only way to do it was to try to keep the nails from ever hitting the ground. So I started messing around with nets that were on the, the nets that covered the debris on the trailer, those nets, because tarps were burning stuff. I tried a million tarps. I mean, I bought like, I had a whole trailer full of tarps. I would tarp like the entire property, like to the edge of the, the lawn. I'd stake it in at the edge of the other person's lawn, you know, just to try to make sure. But then we were just burning stuff all the time and tarps kind of a false sense of security because they get holes so quick you know, that a lot of times you drag, the crew will drag material around to get it to the trailer and they're actually sprinkling nails the whole way in an area where no one's working. So nobody goes back there to check it because they didn't drag it right in front of the house. They drug it out in the yard where there was no material. And so they're sprinkling nails. So it, it got marginally better, but it didn't solve the problem. And so I started messing with those nets and then they were a fair amount more durable than I really thought they would be. Um, but I really switched to them just so I wasn't burning everything and found that they were more durable and tried to come up with these systems of clips and stuff where you could hang them from the fascia or the gutters or whatever. I just kept damaging people's houses with that. The clips would break stuff off or snap a little piece off the fascia or we'd hang it on the gutters and we'd get all scraped or dented or pulled or bent or whatever. And we just kind of had this realization one day that if we hung it from poles and leaned the poles against the house, then we could use it on any house no matter what the facial looked like or whether they had gutters or they didn't or whatever, we just weren't going to attach it to the house. And that was the real kind of breakthrough moment for us when we realized, Oh man, we can make a system that we can at least take with ourselves to every job and know that we're going to be able to protect the house. And so as soon as I started doing that, people were asking me <laughs> to make them some or to buy it from us or whatever. And so um, they developed from there, but the genesis of the idea was just, just to make a better customer experience. That's all it was about. And then since it's grown a lot, like we have great marketing potential that you get for that value. You can supplement carriers for it, you know, with, with some success. It's not, you know, highly, highly successful. You certainly don't get it every time, but you can get it enough of the time to get ROI on what you paid for the system, um, you know, within your first year easily. And then you get the marketing value, you get you know, referrals and callbacks because it's, 
it brands your job in such a way that there's nobody in the neighborhood that doesn't know you're doing the roof. Everybody sees it. Everybody knows what's going on. And um, it makes it much easier to door knock around, get warm leads. Uh, we get people all the time to stop in the yard and they're like, what are you guys doing here? <laughs> you know, it looks like we're fumigating the house or, you know, people don't even know because we wrap it up so tight they can't even see the house half the time. Um, and so it just generates a lot of attention. And it's also really effective communicating to the customer that you do value their experience. You're really doing absolutely the best that can be done. And if there's a mistake at that point, they're like, well, I know you really did your best. I really saw it. I mean, you communicated it. You delivered. I saw you guys set it up. I saw you wrap everything. So yeah, you broke, you know, my rose bush or there's some nails over here, but I know you guys really tried. And then they go, yeah. Oh yeah. It's a construction site. I know you're not going to get them all, but thanks for trying. Like it just really changes their perspective. And so once we experienced that, we were like, yeah, we should probably, you know, start letting other people buy it, you know, but it wasn't my intention. I had just invented it for me because I was just literally going crazy, suffering that same problem over and over again, you know? So that's that such from. a cool story. I mean, but that's how all great products are born. It's because it came out of our true problem that you, the inventor had, and we love it. I mean, at Rain Tight General Contracting, my business partner, Miller Whedon owns Rain Tight, and we we have really enjoyed having the catch-all because it does solve that problem with the nails. But like you mentioned, the customer service part, because we want to review as well. Like we want to give yep. them the best customer experience. I tell, I tell people up front, we want you to have world-class customer experience mm-hmm. so that you can be excited about leaving a review on Google or Facebook and excited to tell your friends. And for us, it's been a great customer service tool, but it's also been um, a powerful piece of marketing in the more affluent neighborhoods of Dallas because they may have spent 20, 30 grand on their landscaping. And now I can come in and say, Hey, by the way, I noticed that really nice landscaping. It's all going to be protected. We're going to make sure not a single thing falls on that because we use the catch all system you know, have you ever seen that before? No. Okay. Well, we're one of the only roofers doing it. And so we set ourselves apart by using the system. Um, And it worked. I mean, we had a deal in in Highland Park in Dallas with one of the most expensive neighborhoods in Dallas, and it was a retail job. They didn't want to file a claim because they owned multiple properties and they didn't want their rates to go up. And part of the sales process that I used to close the deal was by explaining the catch-all. Right. (laughs) And I yep. want their neighbors who have multi-million dollar homes to see rain tight totally. general contracting on the front of the net. And I want their neighbors across the street to see it too. So we love it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny. One of the things that we didn't realize people were going to do with it is we have people that upsell it all the time. Customers are happy to pay 500 bucks, a thousand bucks to know that they get that extra protection because nobody else given that presentation, given that opportunity, um, people make money with it all the time. People put it in their marketing. They use it to close a deal if they get if they're kind of close on number and they're, they're like, well, hey, you know, I'll throw in the catch all because they already built it for value for five hundred bucks, seven hundred bucks, thousand bucks, whatever it was. If you go with us, we'll throw it in. You know, sometimes they use it for that, but a lot of times people just pay for it. Be like, yeah, I want to pay the five hundred bucks. Like insurance is paying the rest of this. I'm going to pay five hundred extra bucks to make sure my stuff's okay. You know, um, people have a lot of success with that. And that's not anything we ever. We didn't even start that. At my company, we weren't doing that because we just never thought of it. We didn't assume people were going to pay us. We thought it was just going to be a differentiator. And um, there's a lot of people using it to generate revenue, you know, on top of that, because, you know, cost X number of dollars to get the kit, depending on which size you get or whatever. And then you sell it 10 times and you doubled your money already. So so good. Well, how can people who want to learn about the catch-all, how can they learn more? What's the website? um, You can go to catchall.com or roofworks.com. 
and you can read about it there. You can watch a ton of videos, um, get all your information. You can order it there. You can call the number on the site. You can order over the phone if you have more questions or whatever. They'll talk you through the process of getting the custom banners made that come with the kit, that come included. Um, so yeah, you can call or you can just go on the website. I wanted to show you, I don't know if you'll be able to see it, but this is uh, this is our reviews. Oh, I guess it's gonna be backwards, huh? Just showing you our reviews at our Tyler office, 274, uh, 4.9 stars, 274 reviews um, on our Tyler office alone. I think across all offices, we're close to 500 reviews. Um, Man. Yeah, we get a lot because we push for it from the very beginning. That's what we're working for is that review and that referral. So, That's awesome. You guys are killing it. Well, what's one parting piece of advice before we wrap this up to other business owners out there? Get a coach. Get a coach. Develop yourself. Jump into a peer group. Um, you know, reading books is good. Going to conferences is good. There's there's a lot of value to be had there. But having somebody that can sit down with you one on one and tell you what you're doing wrong to your face, um, if you can, you know, be uh, strong enough to hear it and benefit from it, you got to get it. Nobody's success. There's nobody really successful in life that doesn't have coaches behind them. I don't care what they're doing, whether it's business or sports, it doesn't matter. Really highly successful people got a team of people that they pull from. So if you're not doing that, you're missing something. And I don't coach, so I'm not selling you. <laughs> trying to get me to coach you. I'm just telling you, you need to coach. You can message me if you want. Find me on Facebook. I'll tell you the ones that I use. But, you know, it doesn't matter where you go. In a, in, a, in, in a sense, it doesn't matter. Yes, there are certain ones that are better than others. But just taking that step to be vulnerable enough to have somebody look you in the eye and say, you need to do X and you need to stop doing Y. And next week, I want you to tell me how you did X and how you stopped Y. That's going to make it. It's a game changer for you. It's so good. Good advice. Well, Heath Hicks, owner of Avco and the Catch-All, thank you so much for joining us, man. Lots of great – See you around, Dylan. All right, man. Talk to you soon. Bye. All right, great interview with Heath Hicks. I think it's a phenomenal story that he has, his upbringing. You know, if anybody was to be deemed somebody who wasn't in the right situation to be successful, it was Heath. He went through a lot of hard knocks, but he overcame those challenges and he kept striving forward. And I think it's just a lesson to all of us about perseverance and also creativity to get to become go from sales guy to owner of a company and then create a system through a need that you see on a daily basis, like the catch all become an entrepreneur in that sense and solve a real problem. I mean, that's how the best products are created and launch the catch-all, which is also a successful company. I think it's phenomenal. So anyway, I'm a big fan of Heath. I love his story. And we've also become an affiliate partner with the catch-all. So if you're not using the catch-all already, I definitely am a big believer in it. We use it at Rain Tight General Contracting. It's a way to get referrals and sales and also just protect all of the um, landscaping and stuff like that around the house and really just set yourself apart from other general contractors and roofers. So you can go to the catchall.com slash or not catchall.com slash anything. It's just catchall.com. But when you go to check out, put the promo code limitless and you will get some special treatment. All right. So we appreciate that. It's a way to say thank you for the free resources in this podcast. And guys, again, please, if you're listening this far, join the conversation on our Facebook group. Go to the Limitless Roofing CEO group. I will see you there and I'll catch you in the next episode. Hey.